0: I will follow him, follow him wherever he may go, there isn't an ocean too deep, a mountain so high it can't keep me away, I must follow him, ever since he touched my hand
1: My guest today has co-authored one of the most Jesus-centered, Jesus-exalting books I've ever read. Join me today as we explore the Son of God. When um, I became close friends with Leonard Ravenhill the last five years of his life, one of the first books that he wanted me to read was by a Puritan, Isaac Ambrose. It was 700 pages long. It was called Looking Unto Jesus. It was an exposition from Hebrews 12 on those three words, 700 pages, by a Puritan, small print, big, thick book. But that's how important it was for Leonard Ravenhill that we focus on Jesus I'm holding in my hands really a remarkable book. It's it's one of the more unique books I've read. It's co-authored by Leonard Sweet and my guest today, Frank Viola. It's called Jesus a Theography. And if you want something that's going to draw you to Jesus from the first page to the last and getting you just kind of sitting back sometimes going, wow, that's, that's amazing. He's amazing. This book will do it. Uh, Frank Viola popular conference speaker, best-selling author of numerous books on the deeper Christian life. His blog, Beyond Evangelical, is rated as one of the most popular in Christian circles today. His website, FrankViola.org. Frank, it's uh, great to finally have you on the Line of Fire broadcast.
2: Yes, yes, finally, finally. I'm honored to be on and uh, humbled by your kind words about the book, really, really humbled by them.
1: Well, thanks. I, I, I know you and Leonard worked hard on it, and I want to get into the book in in detail in this next hour. Some folks may know you from your, your writings years ago as a pioneer in the house church movement. Some may know you for a book that sparked a lot of discussion uh, that George Barnard then reworked with you, Pagan Christianity. Your, your books, more recently, uh, teaming up with Leonard Sweet, have gotten... A whole lot of circulation as well. But for, for those who don't know you, Frank, uh, what, what's your spiritual passion? What makes you tick? And, and why are you writing these books?
2: Great question. I suppose it's two things. One, and they are connected. You know, Paul talked about something that he referred to as the heavenly vision, when he was uh, standing before Agrippa, he said, "I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision." And to my mind, the heavenly vision was a an unveiling, a revelation, an awakening to Jesus Christ as both head and body. And we find uh, those two themes in the two greatest letters in the New Testament, as far as I'm concerned, Ephesians and Colossians. In Colossians, it's an unveiling of Christ the Head, His centrality, His supremacy, His all-inclusiveness, His fullness, His all-sufficiency. And then in Ephesians, we have Christ the Body, that Jesus Christ is expressed in His fullness via the Body of Christ. So all of my work is really on those two points, Christ the Head, Christ the Body, with laser focus on His supremacy, His preeminence, His beauty, His glory because I think that many Christians today suffer from JDD, Jesus Deficit Disorder. Mm. And so we're trying to correct that in some of what we've written.
1: Yeah, and and Frank, you you have done that marvelously. And we'll, We'll get into the book on the other side of the break, but 30 seconds. Frank, what are some of your other more recent books that point in this direction?
2: Jesus' Manifesto, which is a smaller, shorter book, and it's a statement about the supremacy of Christ, very practically applying it to today's situation. A one called Revise Us Again, which is all about spiritual transformation and spiritual formation. And I deal there with issues that are very rarely talked about in Christian circles today when we talk about transformation, etc. And then From Eternity to Here, which is the grand narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation...
1: Uh, a whole lot of stuff that Frank's produced. The website again, Frank Viola, dot org. We'll come back and dive into Jesus, a theography. What, what's a theog- what in the world is a theography? Frank, be- before we talk about what a theography is, I've written a lot as well. And when I have something older that I've worked on, then I try to rework it Or sharpen it that's a lot harder for me than than writing fresh and yet you co-authored a book with Leonard Sweet author of 50 books himself a a professor an influential Christian leader how does that work I've done things where I've written a chapter in a collaborative work but I've never actually co-authored a whole book so how do you guys pull that off
2: (laughs) well it's a major headache (laughs) especially if you have two different writing paces it blows hot and cold. It's bitter and sweet. I mean, there's a great side to it to co author with someone. You know, it can be really fun and engaging. You know, you kind of tag off what they're saying and vice versa, and you improve what they're doing and vice versa. But there's a dark side, too. And with Lynn and I, we have two totally different writing paces. I am a plotter, okay? I, I like to write a little bit at a time and chip away at it slowly. And, after a period of a year, you know a book emerges. Len is a binger; he waits to the last minute he 's kind of like those uh college students that cram for the test you know an hour before or a day before uh-huh. exam yeah, yeah. time. so <laughs> that made it real difficult and When you have a binger and a chipper working together, the binger always wins out so there were long periods of time where there was just no writing done at all. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's a big book. And we basically wrote 90% of it in six weeks, working over mm. Christmas and New Year's, et cetera, and then we turned it in. So, you know, it was an act of God, as far as I'm concerned, to get the book finished the way we did. We were very happy when it when it came out and we finished it.
1: Yeah, you know, when when I do, like, commentary writing and stuff like that, I'm a plotter. You just keep picking away at that mountain, you know, day by day by day. And then other things I, I kind of write in these binge runs where an intensive month, you get 80% of of the work done. But to co-author, yeah, that's an interesting mix. But, of course, the, the blend is wonderful. It's one voice that comes out with different nuances. And I enjoyed, as I was reading it, saying, does this sound more like Frank? Does this sound more like Leonard? I started to pick up on things a little bit. But what you have in common, though, is is you're both enthralled with Jesus, amazed with who He is, and finding him everywhere in the best sense of the Word, in other words, insights from Scripture that just open up and oh, I never thought of that. So it's called a theography. As, as I type that word out, it came up as, as an erroneous word, you know the, my, <laughs> my, my uh, Microsoft Word didn't recognize it. But what's the difference between a theography? and a biography and and then from there what's what's unique about this Jesus book
2: Okay uh, a biography of course is the life story of a human being a theography is the life story of a divine being you know theo is the word that we we translate into god so you know we are highlighting the divinity of Jesus obviously we stand with the creeds. He is both human and he is both divine. But we wanted to underscore that this just is not a human being. Only he is God enfleshed. So it is the story of God, a theography. And what makes it unique, uh, because as you know, there are dozens and dozens, countless numbers of books on Jesus, biographies of Jesus, etc. A couple things. One, most. Books that treat the story of Jesus begin at Bethlehem when he was born there. We begin in the beginning, to quote John 1. We begin before time. Mm -hmm. We begin before creation. We begin before God said, let. And there is a lot in Scripture, both Old and New Testament, that tell us, that give us insight into what Jesus Christ was doing before he was incarnate as the eternal mm-hmm. Son of God, what he was doing before time, before creation. And we have a whole chapter that sketches that out, and it's it's good news for the Christian, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, that was a lot of fun to write. It's also unique in that we try to take all of the major places that Jesus Christ is alluded to Referenced, not only prophesied about, well, most Christians are familiar with the prophecies in the Old Testament that point to Christ, but all of the images and the shadows and the types and the stories and illusions that shed light on Christ from Genesis to Malachi. We try to connect all the dots from Old Testament to New Testament to present this one narrative of Jesus, the Son of God, from Genesis all the way down to the genuine leather in the back of the Bible. And that's what we set out to do, and the connections in writing this book, Michael, and you know this because you've read it, I mean, it was a mind-blower just to see him on virtually every page of the Old Testament. Remember, he said, all Scripture testifies of me. Well, what, is, what does that mean, all Scripture testifies of me? And that's what we try to unveil in the book.
1: Right, so, so there is scriptural merit for example, when Jesus is talking to his fellow Jews in, in John the fifth chapter, he said, If you believed Moses, you'd believe in me. Yeah. And and then the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke twenty-four, and then his disciples at the end of Luke twenty-four, where where he unfolds in the scriptures and said, You you didn't get it, you didn't see it. Now, of <laughs> course, you know part of my work, Frank, is involved with, with reaching out to my Jewish people and debating rabbis and that kind of thing, and, and we'll be accused of reading things into right. the text. And obviously, someone could, could make that accusation when you've got hundreds of pages of of looking for Jesus everywhere. But in another way, if if he, in fact, is God and has breathed these words out, then it's not surprising to find him everywhere.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, we believe that jesus the son of god is god the father's passion and god is a great artist and every artist will put the imprint of his work into his art and so consequently you know the bible says that the the heavens declare the glory of god you know creation speaks to his wisdom well the glory of god is in the face of jesus christ and jesus christ is wisdom incarnate and so when the father was creating This material world, he was putting in it his highest passion, which is his Son. And so there are the fingerprints in the images of Jesus Christ all over creation, beginning with day one on. And the New Testament authors were just genius at bringing this out. But as Christians, we read the New Testament, we read the Old Testament, and we often miss these connections, and that's what we try to do in the book. We try to bring it all together so that the reader can just step back and be stunned at how Christ fills all Scripture.
1: Yeah, and there are a bunch of specific things we'll go through. We'll start in Genesis, we'll we'll break down different parts of the book. But when you mention the painting analogy... As I was, I was reading the book at the beginning, it had a certain richness to it that reminded me of kind of reading a symphony, if I could mix images. Mm-hmm. But when you mentioned the, the painter and God's theme, uh, I'm no art expert, but obviously Pablo Picasso, you can recognize his work. You know, If you've seen that, it's like, oh, that's a Picasso. Every picture has a similar look to it. So you're saying that, that God breathes Jesus out, this reality, throughout Scripture, and that if you, if you look with attentive eyes, there he is kind of shouting at you through the pages. So yeah. it must have been kind of a revelatory experience to write. We've got about a minute before the next break, but were, were you doing that, you and Leonard, as you were writing, like, wow, look at this, I never saw it before?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, there was a lot that we brought to the book that we had already seen through the right. years, but as we were writing you know new insights were popping up and it just i mean the whole thing just blew our circuitry and we've had responses along that same line from christians you know i've been a christian 30 years i've never seen christ like this before so i mean that really deeply blesses us to see that kind of reaction
1: friends uh, you can get a copy of jesus a theography 425 page hardcover together with this interview today with the co-author of the book frank Viola wrote it together with Leonard Sweet. My guest today on the Line of Fire, Frank Viola, author of many books, but most recently co-authored the book we're talking about today. Wrote it with Leonard Sweet, the book *Jesus: A Theography*. Frank's website, frankviola.org. Well, Frank, you start out your theography with within the beginning, with uh, before time, and. That I was amazed to read that. Okay, that's that's a lot to say. But scripture does point to it. But but then you've got a couple of chapters on, on Jesus in, in Genesis one and creation, a a, a micro version and a macro version. So obviously a book this rich and, and deep filled with quotes and references, we can only whet the appetite of our listeners with the hope that they'll they'll get the book. But just just give us some glimpses of what you discovered brought to the table about Jesus in Genesis 1.
2: Sure. Uh, Genesis 1, of course, opens with the words, in the beginning, and the first thing we see there is that God creates light, darkness covers the earth, and then God speaks light into existence. So we have light out of darkness. Well, in the book of John, John 1, we have the words, in the beginning. That's how John starts his gospel, and John, of course, is the new Genesis. It reveals Jesus as the new creation, and John opens up by saying that there was darkness, and the light has come out of the darkness and conquered it, and the light became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Consequently, Jesus Christ is the embodiment, the reality of the light in Genesis one that we see in the first day of creation. And Paul understood this because in Second Corinthians he says, God who commanded light to shine out of darkness Referring to Genesis 1, the first day, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you move on to each day, and what Genesis does is it echoes, or John, actually, John chapter 1 echoes Genesis 1. You have day 1, day 2, day 3. In Genesis 1, well, in John, when you read John 1 carefully, he uses similar language. He says, and the next day this happened, and then the next day that happened, and then the next day this happened. Mm. Uh, Day 3, we're all familiar with the third day. Jesus said, the Son of Man shall rise again on the third day. Well, you cannot find a scripture that prophesies that the Messiah will rise again on the third day, but what you do find in Genesis 1 is that on day 3, God... Pulls back the waters that cover the earth, the sea, okay, and sea is often a, a representation of death in the scripture, and out of this sea emerges dry land and the first mention of life. And it's plant life, and it bears seed. So you have life from the dead or from the sea on the third day well that rings a bell doesn't it <laughs> uh... and so you know jesus said if a grain of wheat falls into the ground and does not die it abides alone, but if it dies it will bear many grains and jesus christ in his resurrection bore seed incorruptible seed you know he multiplied in resurrection and it happened on the third day uh, that's no accident uh... we continue on day four the scene shifts from the earth to the heavens we have the sun we have the moon we have the stars And in the New Testament, it's very clear uh, that the sun is, and in the Old Testament as well, is a picture of Jesus Christ, and we sketch that out as well. You know, he's called the son of righteousness, S-U-N, with healing in his wings. And then you have the stars, which Paul says in Philippians, we Christians are like lights in a dark world. We are like stars shining the light through the darkness. And so all of it points to Christ. You know, day seven, the Sabbath. Well, in Colossians 2, Paul uh, unveils to us the truth that Jesus Christ is the reality of the Sabbath, the Sabbath with a shadow, and Christ is the substance. Uh, he is the rest of God. And we go on and on and on, and maybe later we could talk about, after the uh, commercial, we could talk about Genesis 2, because that, to me, was the big, grand mind-blower of all.
1: Yeah, we've we've got a couple minutes. You know, when I've looked at the polemical question challenged by rabbis, where's the third day resurrection? I've looked at allusions, I've looked at the, the binding of Isaac, and it's a three-day period from going to coming, and then the, the, the prefiguring of the resurrection there. I've looked at Hosea 6, and I'll raise you up yes. on the third day. But with all the years of looking at that, it had never dawned on me, honestly, to, to look <laughs> at Genesis the third day in that context. But that is the first third day. You're right. Well, let's, let's do this. Let's take two minutes... And at least get started with the insights of Jesus in Genesis 2. Because this this was a surprise for me to read this content.
2: Yeah, well, you have Adam, the first man. He is alone. God puts him in a deep sleep. And then out of his side, he opens at the side, and God pulls out a woman. Now, that woman was in Adam all along. Adam didn't know it, but God did. So it was a mystery. And the woman comes out, Eve. They look at one another. They fall in love. And the two become one. Okay? Well... Paul (laughs) does something amazing in Ephesians 5. He tells the story of Adam and Eve, just as I've told it, but he says, I'm not speaking of the historical Adam nor the historical Eve. I'm speaking of the real Adam and the real Eve. I'm speaking of Christ and the Church. Behold, I show you a mystery. The Son of God was put into the deepest sleep of all, death. And God opened up the side of the Son of God. Remember, he was on the cross. His side was Mm -hmm. open and blood and water poured out. Blood for redemption and water for life. The impartation of life. And that was the womb, that open side of Jesus Christ was the womb for the Bride of Christ to come forth, and she is one with him, one spirit with the Lord, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And the amazing thing is that when Jesus Christ was walking on this earth, he had a girl inside of him. For we were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And so, what happened on that day in Genesis two was a picture of what God was going to do with the second Adam, the new Adam, the real Adam, Jesus Christ, and His bride. And so, we sketch that out in detail in the book.
1: Got it? Yeah, and and even you know, I'm I'm a I'm an endnote reader as well. Some of the readers are going to skip those, but sometimes the endnote is just as rich as the as the mm-hmm. the main content. And friends, it's four hundred. 25 pages of this. All right, we're going to be back with Frank Viola. Go to his website, frankviola.org. But this is, this is a book you will not be disappointed in, and that will captivate you. Jesus, a Theography, Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola. I am joined today by a very special guest, prolific author, known in many different circles in the body for his call for radically going back to the scriptures and reevaluating what we know as church he has co-authored a book with leonard sweet called jesus a theography frank viola author of many other books and an influential blog as well called uh, beyond evangelical Frankviola.org is his website frank with all of the books that are out on jesus and between you and Leonard, I'm sure you've read far, far more than 99.9% of the rest of us. Why did you feel that, that another book was needed or that, or that you could somehow say something that, that hadn't been said in an important way?
2: Well, we wanted to do something that, as far as we know, had never been done before. And you know this because you're someone who is an academic person who runs in academic circles as well as, you know, speaks on the ground to people of all persuasions. There is this fight between theologians and New Testament scholars. (laughs) It's one where the theologian, you know, looks at the Bible uh, with a big lens and sees the big picture, and connects things from Old to New Testament. And then you have the New Testament scholars that kind of look at the Bible through a microscope, just look at the New Testament, and don't really do a lot of connecting the dots to the Old Testament, and there's this ongoing war between the two. Now what we tried to do is we tried to build a bridge and take the best of the theologians, their insights over, you know, the course of church history, and take the best of the findings of New Testament scholars and the light they've shed on historical Jesus studies, and we tried to do both the big picture as well as the tiny details, and using the paintbrush of Jesus Christ. To paint it all together. I'm not aware of a book that kind of brings those two lenses together and connects all the dots from Old and New Testament as much as we have, and as much detail as we have. And then on top of that, takes the best of historical Jesus studies and sheds light on the New Testament text by doing so. We talk to so many Christians, and they're just ignorant of Christ in the Old Testament. You know, outside of the fact that, oh yeah, well he's prophesied in the Psalms and in Isaiah, uh, mm. not realizing that he's everywhere. I mean, he's in the opening verse of Genesis all the way to the end of Malachi. So we have not been given the proper hermeneutic. The hermeneutic, the method of interpretation that the first century Christians were given, that New Testament authors used, where they saw Christ bleeding through every page of Scripture, you know. And one of the images we give in the book is that if all of the references and illusions and images of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament was written in red, then the Bible would glow in the dark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. we'd have a red-letter uh, Bible, not just a red-letter New Testament.
1: You, you know, one thing that's, that's extremely apparent to me, and I'll, I'll just mention this, then, then we'll come back after the break and focus on Jesus' childhood, the, the quote, missing years. Um, but it, in, there is a teaching I, I refer to hyper-grace teaching, and one of the things it does is says that the words of Jesus... Are not relevant for believers today because that was before the cross and that was for quote Jews under the law aside from having theological error in the statement I've been wondering what disciple of Jesus would not want to run after every one of his words if we discovered a lost word that was genuinely his we'd want to devour it and meditate on it but what wow. you've done is is again as you say show us that the whole Bible is really in that sense red letter glowing in red all right so so what happened during Jesus' childhood, have Frank and Leonard Sweet unearthed some secret sources? How can they write a couple chapters about the childhood and missing years of Jesus? You I, I just saw that someone posted on my Facebook page, was this Frank Viola, the baseball player I was interviewing? Frank, I, I get confused with other people because Michael Brown's a common name, but uh, uh, do you get confused with other people a lot? I, maybe I missed the fact that there was a Frank Viola baseball player.
2: Well I am Frank Viola, the baseball player. I had a wicked fastball in high school but uh, unfortunately that's where it ended. Uh, (laughs) But there is a a Frank Viola, I've actually talked to him. He knows who I am and I know who he is, although his bank account is a lot larger than mine. He played in the major leagues and uh, fulfilled my boyhood dream. I wanted to be a pitcher for the New York Mets and well Frank Viola did, it just wasn't me. But I will be signing baseballs for everyone who sends one into your program.
1: Sounds like a deal (laughs) if if we get one sent in, we'll, uh, we'll send it your way. But but tell you the truth, uh, if I had a choice between who to interview and interview a baseball player about skills in baseball, or you about exalting Jesus, I think it's uh, hands down here. Alright, the 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 childhood years of Jesus, we have the, the one account uh, in, in Luke's Gospel where he's 12 years old. Otherwise, basically, Luke tells us he's about 30 at the time of his baptism. You've got rabbinic literature, and Gnostic literature, and other things that, that paint pictures about missing years, but otherwise we don't have a lot of information, and, and yet you've got a couple chapters in your book about childhood of Jesus missing years. So where did you get the content from, and, and what do we learn in these chapters?
2: Great question. I'm, I'm tempted to tell a little joke that, you know, we went on an archaeological dig and found this lost scroll, and uh, but I'm not going to do that. What we do, um, a couple things. Uh, first of all, ancient biographers people who wrote biographies in the ancient world when they covered someone's life they talked about their birth and then they talked about their adult life mainly their you know career or if they impacted the world in some way and then they talk about their death the only time they would mention the childhood is if something happened that was unique and out of the ordinary so if you take that fact and you look at the gospels and you only have one incident where the childhood of jesus is mentioned that seems to speak very loudly that it was pretty ordinary we know that he was an artisan. The popular idea is that he was a carpenter, but modern research has shown that he was more like a mason slash carpenter. You know, he was a journeyman. He worked with wood and stone, probably more with stone than wood, which makes him a builder, uh, which is interesting because he is
1: not a member of the Masons. Yeah, no, no, not the Masons. Don't, don't. (laughs) If you want to take that controversy up, you write to Frank on that one, not to me, all right? Because I am not I am not saying, we are not saying Jesus was a Mason, meaning a member of the Masons. You're saying right. he was involved in, in Masonry. Yeah, okay.
2: bricklaying, right. you know, working with stone. Right. And we know that Joseph was as well. Now, this is interesting because, based on this understanding, he lived a pretty ordinary life, aside from being perfect. And never Mm -hmm. sinning, you know, which scripture makes very clear, but he was a blue collar worker he was a day laborer. He didn't go off to Jerusalem to study as to be a priest. He didn't go off to Jerusalem to study to be a scribe. In other words, he did not have any kind of clerical training where a professional minister would have. In that time, he was just someone who worked with his hands. This is a blessing for every person who works, because it shows that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, knows what it's like To sweat. He knows what it's like to work. He probably had angry customers. He probably had people who tried to jip him out of money. I mean, if you look at the artisans of that day, and this was very typical as it is in our time, you know, and he sanctified... His work, by doing it. The Son of God sanctified even the mundane and the ordinary and the routine. I'm sure there were days where he probably got bored with what he was doing. And every person who works knows what that feels like. But Jesus Christ made it holy because his holy hands were involved in it. So it's a great message. But we also know, too, that as he was growing up, the Father was speaking to him. We know this was happening from age 12. He makes that clear. And he also said that whatever I teach, when he was in ministry, he said, my Father taught me. You know, whatever I say, the Father showed me. Mm -hmm. And so I can see, Now we don't have proof of this, but we can make a few educated guesses through logical conclusions, but I can see Jesus as a 20-year-old, he's in his early 20s, his father passed away, we know that his father died somewhere around that time because Joseph's out of the picture. And now the burden of the family, you know, Jesus did have siblings, the Gospel is clear about that, falls on the shoulders of Jesus. And maybe he's walking outdoors and he's tempted to worry about money. And the Father speaks to him and says... Wait, wait, wait. He's Look, tempted?
1: You're, you're saying Jesus was tempted to Oh, yeah. The Scripture I mean, he was God, clearly he was, God he was God tempted flesh. in all points, yeah. like
2: as we yep. are. Imagine him walking in the meadows there, and the Father speaks to him in that hour of temptation and says, Behold the lilies of the field. They don't work. They don't spin, and yet I clothe them. And Jesus looks up to the sky, and he sees birds, and the Father says, See these birds? I take care of them. And so I will take care of you, my son. You do not have to worry. Each day has evil sufficient for it, and I will care for you. And then later in his ministry, he reflects back on that, because the Father had showed him that. And now he teaches the Jewish people about the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, and your Father will take care. So things like that probably yeah. did happen. Yeah. So he was tutored by his Father in a carpenter's shop, and I just think that's a wonderful message for every Christian today who works.
1: Yeah, and you know another side that comes to mind just as you're painting that picture I'll play games do sports things with with my sons-in-law one of them lives close to us And he's got a son and a daughter But of course the son is going to be participating more in these kinds of things and and my son-in-law And I will rib each other and we'll challenge each other and so on you know trash talk and that kind of thing So now (laughs) I'm watching the grandson. He's eight just turned nine and he trash talks with me. We're all having fun <laughs> the same way. He's challenging me the same way. And his dad likes to wear a baseball hat, and he wears a baseball hat. And yeah. you, know, you just watch the father-son thing. Well, then, of course, when, when you're being mentored, when you're being apprenticed in a job, you're watching yeah. really carefully. And Dad does it like that. I do it like this. Uh, mm. So that idea of, of now Jesus, Yeshua, as a grown man saying, I can only do what I see my father doing, mm. there's something, I think, where we... As believers, especially if we learn something from our dad, how to put a tie on or something like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, watch him do it, that, that we can think of that mentoring-apprentice relationship and then translate, like, wow, yeah, if I stay before God and sit at his feet, and meditate on his word, stay in his presence, then I, I do what he did. Or then Jesus becoming the pattern and we follow him yeah. as, as, as he sets the example. I mean, it's, it's rich stuff. It's very life-impacting. It's not abstract mm-hmm. in the least.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we try to uh, put all of these clues together in those chapters on the missing years. Just take what Jesus said, and then, of course, when he was speaking publicly, they all said, well, is this not the son of Joseph, uh, (laughs) the artisan? I mean, you know, what is he doing? Which shows that they were just surprised that he had this authority when he spoke because he was a mere carpenter or a mason, a bricklayer, that is. And here he is outwitting the professional clergy of that day, you know? So it's just, uh, there's a lot of messages there about his his life as he grew up, and it's a blessing to every person who puts their hand to the plow and works to make a living because Jesus knew what that was most of his life. I mean, his ministry only lasted three to four years.
1: So amazing. most of
2: his life was in that artisan shop, learning from his father you know
1: mm. striking it, it is absolutely striking uh, we 've got less than a minute before the next break uh, scholars, theologians, pastors, leaders have given glowing glowing reviews of the book. What have you been hearing from from readers that have read it and just been impacted? What kind of anecdotal input are you getting?
2: I guess the big one is and this is the positive one, is I've read the Bible for many, many years, and now it's beginning to dawn on me that all of it points to and reveals Jesus. And I never connected these dots before. You know, I read passages in the New Testament many, many times, but I never saw the connection to the Old Testament texts like I do now. So, I mean, that is such a blessing to hear people say that, because that's what happened to us, you know, (laughs) when we found and discovered these things, and then to put it in writing and to share it with others is
1: just a blessing. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. We've got a ton of ground to cover. That's why there's a whole book. We'll come back with, with some of the highlights of the ministry of Jesus. Frank Viola, the book, Jesus of Theography, co-authored with Leonard Sweet. All right, Frank, in our limited time, I don't even know that we'll get to the to the resurrection, the ascension, or the return <laughs> of Jesus, but let let's... Take take a cup and, and dip it into the ocean here and come up with a few of the things that struck you the most, that you were most excited about writing about in, in terms of the, the earthly ministry of Jesus. Give us a few highlights that really stirred your own heart.
2: It's the absolute domination of the fact that Jesus again and again and again and again kept telling us what the engine was, to his incredible life and his incredible ministry. And you find this most clearly in the book of John. Jesus did not walk around with a WWFD bracelet on his wrist asking, what would the Father do in this situation? What would the Father do in that situation? Mm -hmm. Um, Instead, he said, I live by... My father's life. I can do nothing of myself. What I teach, Mm. the father has shown me. What I do, the works that you see, it's not me doing it, it's the father through me. And this is very powerful because it puts ministry on a totally different level. You know, he didn't go to leadership classes, he didn't do spiritual gifts inventories, he wasn't professionally trained. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but Jesus Christ didn't do any of that stuff. He had an indwelling father. Well, here's the beautiful thing when he was on that cross, and he died three days later. God the Father rose him again from the dead, brought him up, and he became, what Paul says, a life-giving spirit in First Corinthians 15. And then he showed up in a sealed room where his disciples were. He took a deep breath, not on this earth, but in the bosom of God himself, and he breathed the spirit that was in him into his disciples. And the only begotten Son became, at that point, the firstborn among many brethren and many sistren And the passage move what the Father was to Jesus, Jesus now is to you and me. He is our indwelling Lord. And so that's why he could say to the disciples without my Father I can do nothing, well without me you can do nothing. He said in John six, as the Father has sent me and I live by the Father, so he who partakes of me shall live by me there's a, just a stunning message there that you know we have the indwelling life of Christ and we can learn to be awakened to that life in us, the consciousness of that life, the spiritual instincts of that life. And then it is not I, as Paul said, but Christ who lives in me. There is the secret of ministry, all-effective ministry. It's the secret of Jesus' amazing ministry. And um, he has passed that on to us, unedited, to have that same kind of engine running in us that we draw from, the life of Christ. And so that's one of the most powerful things, I guess, to me, is just to see the inner work you know, what was operating behind Jesus' ministry, you know, what was the accelerator behind it, and to know that he gave that same thing to us, an indwelling life, the divine presence in us to draw from and to live by, it's just amazing.
1: Yeah, I'm, genuinely, I'm not saying this just to to say words, Frank, but uh, I'm being ministered to and stirred as I listen, as we talk, as I was reading, reading different parts of the book in particular, and there's really this potential, not for us to be these exalted beings, but for us to really reflect Jesus and really show the world who he is. And and I know that behind some of the burden you've had about the anemic state of much of the church for many years has been your jealousy for Jesus and his reputation. So I I commend you, Frank, for pointing us to him. I, I hope This book continues to do well, and and everyone who gets it reads it. Real quick, if folks go to frankviola.org, what will they find at your website?
2: Yeah, they will find hundreds of articles, free articles that they could read That all geared toward the centrality of christ and going beyond you know the typical gospel we've all heard that jesus is savior and try to be a good christian in your own strengths there's free conference messages i mean it's just a ton of information and resources that people can get most of which are totally free and i have conversations too so if they can ask their questions as well via the blog
1: wonderful well may the lord continue to to use you to exalt Jesus and challenge us to, uh, to become like him. And, and thanks for making the effort with Leonard to write this book. I appreciate it, Frank.
2: I appreciate you having me on. I'm hugely honored. I'm a big fan of yours. I have a tremendous respect for you, so thanks.
1: Well, you tr- trust me, you've stirred me to be more, more in awe of the Lord and draw on that mm-hmm. life of God and really just, as he saw the Father. Yeah, I mean, I'm, trust me, I'm, I'm freshly stirred. Frank, God bless you, and thanks for joining us. I appreciate it.
2: You too. Thank you.
1: Well, you really need to get this book, friends. This is this is no hype. The book, Jesus of Theography, 425 pages. For those that are students of the Word and like to dig deep, read more, It's it's got a lot of amazing notes. It's got an appendix with, with incredible quotes about Jesus through the Scriptures, and then the book itself, over 300 pages of just the main content, Jesus of Theography, together with today's interview, which I thought... I don't know if I'm being partial, but I, I thought it was a terrific interview, not for me, because of, but because of what Frank said.
0: I will follow him, follow him where.